Prince College Podcast, a ministry of Prince Avenue Baptist Church where our goal is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. All right, well, just to kind of catch you up, we've seen a lot in the book of Exodus so far. Hopefully you've been here for the past several weeks and you've been tracking a lot, but we've seen what God has been doing through this incredible book. We have seen God deliver and rescue people. Like from a baby placed in a basket in the Nile to a people who are liberated from Egypt and walk across a sea on dry land, we have seen God's power. We have seen God's deliverance. We have seen his ultimate supremacy over all rule and over all authority. We have seen God's desire for his people to join him on mission in this world, to be a part of what he is doing. What I told you from the very beginning of this series is that throughout this book, we were going to see God's power. We were going to see God's presence. We were going to see his provision and his purposes all through the eyes or through the lens of his people. We have seen that so far through the book of Exodus. And where we come to tonight, we see God preparing to do something new in the life of the Israelite people. That he is preparing to give them what we commonly refer to as the law. He's preparing to give them the law, the law by which they were meant to live their lives. This is a portion of Exodus that I would say is another really familiar part of the story. Like, even if you're in the room and you didn't grow up in church, my guess is you've at least heard the term, the Ten Commandments, right? This is a popular thing in our culture. We know at least somewhat what these are. These Ten Commandments are given to Moses to present the people on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. This law was given to meant to give direction to the people on how they are to live, a law by which they were meant to order their lives and pursue And here's the deal. Whenever we get to this portion of Scripture, there can sometimes be a tendency to just kind of check out. Because we get to that portion of Scripture where it's all about the rules, the laws, the regulations, and there's a temptation to think, here we go. Like just more rules, more laws. There's a temptation in people, especially in the world in which we live in today, to think that this is all that Christianity is all about. This is all that life with God is about rules, regulations, commandments, laws. But my hope for tonight is to show you that what is about to take place in the life of the Israelite people is about far more than just rules, about far more than just regulations, far more than just trying to modify people's behavior, but it is a call to holiness. It's a call to holiness. And this matters, and it's significant. And my hope for tonight is to do something similar to that which we did whenever we looked at the story of the ten plagues. That I told you whenever we looked at the story of the ten plagues, my goal was only to ask one question. It was the question, why? Why the plagues? Similarly, tonight, my hope is very much the same. To ask the question, why does holiness matter? That for tonight, I just want to ask the question, why does holiness matter? Why does the way that we live our lives as individuals and as a people of God in community, why does that matter to God? And we're gonna answer that question by examining these just first six verses of Exodus 
19. Haley, or excuse me, Duncan read that part for us a moment ago, but we're going to walk through this story together in hopes of seeing why holiness matters. So if you have your Bible, you're going to be able to follow along. I'm just going to point out some key things in the text that I want you to see tonight. The first thing that we see in the book of Exodus chapter 19 is the story opens up by telling us that on the third new moon, the people of Israel come to the region of Sinai. Now, if you're not aware of how to tell time based on the moon, I'll just tell you that the third new moon means that three months have passed. Perhaps you haven't taken that class at UGA yet, but that's what that means. Three new moons means three months have passed. So what that means is this. What that means is this. Pay attention. What that means is this, that these people have been wandering through the wilderness for three months, approximately 90 days, working their way through the wilderness. And keep in mind what we learned last week, that last week, what we saw in the people of God is that they learn to depend upon God, not just for the big salvation moment of parting the Red Sea, but for the daily bread for their daily provision. So what we see is that these people have been walking with God, learning to depend upon God for their daily provision for three months. And then they finally arrive to this place called Sinai. And the text tells us that they encamp there at a mountain, and this is Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb is another name for it. This is a place that you may have heard of if you've spent much time in the scriptures, Mount Sinai is incredibly significant for a multitude of reasons. The first reason, I really want you to, to understand this tonight, one of the main reasons that Mount Sinai is so significant is because this is the same region in which Moses had his first encounter with God at the burning bush. That whenever Moses first encountered God through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, he is in this same region. Moses has led the people out of Egypt to his place of first encounter with God. That he's led them to the place in which he first met with God and experienced God's presence for them to have an encounter there on their own. We know this because in Exodus 3, God promises Moses, he says, in Exodus 3, verse 12, he says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's Exodus 3, verse 12, and we see that promise made in Exodus 3, and we see it fulfilled in Exodus 19. He brings the people of God out of Egypt to his place of first encounter with the Lord. This is incredibly significant. Secondly, I would tell you that Mount Sinai is incredibly significant just because of the amount of time that the people end up spending here. That they've been liberated from Egypt, wandering in the wilderness for three months, and they come to Mount Sinai, and they camp here for approximately one year. They're here for a long time. There. We see throughout the scriptures that Mount Sinai is referenced in over 57 chapters throughout the entire library of scripture. It's incredibly significant. So these people... They come to this place, and they set up camp, and they begin to stay there. And what we see next is that Moses ascends the mountain to meet with God. Just like Moses has done before, he again seeks out the presence of the Lord, and God meets him at the top of the mountain, and he begins to speak to Moses. And look what he says. If you have your Bibles, look at Exodus 19, verse 4. God begins to speak to Moses, and he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
consider what God is doing in that one verse. That he's encouraging Moses to remind the people of their deliverance. Remind the people of their deliverance. He encourages them to remind them of his power, remind them of his provision. He's saying, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. Remember the 10 plagues. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. Remember that you were once enslaved in Egypt. Remember what I did to the Egyptians. He tells them, I brought you out of there. It was like I put you on the wings of eagles. I lifted you out and I delivered you. We see from the get-go here is that God is reminding the people of their deliverance. But look what he says. He brought, I bore you on eagles' wings. And then this phrase here at the end, and I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. What God is doing here in this moment is he's giving the Israelite people a glimpse at the why behind all this, the why behind the deliverance. He says, I brought you to myself. And what he's showing them, it's incredibly significant, what he's showing them is that their deliverance was for relationship. Their deliverance was for relationship. If you're taking notes, write that down because it's going to be important here in a moment, that their deliverance was for relationship. That it was not just for the sake of freedom. It was not just so the people would be out of Egypt. It was so that the people would be with God. That's what he's doing here. That he doesn't just save them from slavery. He saves them for a specific purpose. He doesn't just save them from something. He saves them for something. He saves them for relationship with him. So that they can be in relationship with him. So that they can know him. So that they can walk with him. So they can participate in what he is doing. And he wants them to be his treasured possession among all people. That's what it says in Exodus 19 verse 5. That what God wants for these people is for them to be his treasured possession. This is significant because you got to understand there is nothing significant or valuable about the Israelite people in and of themselves. It's not like they're superhumans or like super special or like just incredibly brilliant. Like there's nothing special about the Israelite people on their own. They had not earned this status. What makes them treasured possessions is not anything specific about them, but it's what it is who they belong to that makes them treasured. It's kind of like, like if you have the experience of like going to a museum and you're seeing all these things in like these glass cases and perhaps you're like walking through and you're seeing like everyday ordinary objects like a hat or a watch or you know, a knife or something like that and you're beginning to look at these things and it just looks like everyday ordinary objects but the thing that makes them valuable is not what they are in and of themselves but it's who they used to belong to that makes them valuable. In the same way, these people have been brought out of Egypt They have been delivered for relationship with God to be his people. And the fact that they belong to him is what makes them treasured possessions. This is not something that they're meant to boast in, but it is something that has been freely given to them. God's treasured possessions among all peoples. But whenever you hear that, it can also bring up the question of like, okay, that Israelite people are meant to be the treasure possession of God, but I thought God was for all people. I thought God cared about all nations. Is this God playing favorites with the Israelite people? It's a long, there's a long answer to that, but the short answer is no. Like God cares about all people. He says that all of the earth 
is mine. He cares about all of it, but he has a specific role that he wants the Israelite people to play. He has a specific role that he wants the Israelite people to play in this grand mission that he is unfolding for the entire world. And he tells them what that mission is in Exodus 19, verse 6, whenever he says this. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That this is what God wants for his people, for his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we come to that, and we read that, and we see that this is what God wants for his people. So we must ask ourselves, well, what does this mean? What does it mean that God wants the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests? What does it mean that he wants the people of Israel to be a holy nation? Well, let's think about this together. Let's break these into two parts. First, kingdom of priests. What could that mean that God wants his people to be a kingdom of priests? Well, consider for a moment the role of a priest. What does a priest even do? Perhaps some of you know that a priest is meant to stand in the gap between God and people. That's what a priest does, that the priest stands in the gap between God and people. Like, think about what Moses is doing right here and right now in Exodus 19, that he is meeting with God, hearing from God, and then communicating that message to the people. And then later what we will see is that Moses will hear from the people and then go to God and make pleas to God on behalf of the people. Moses is acting as a priest. He is a representative of God to the people and a representative of people to God, standing in the gap between God and humanity. That is the role of a priest. So whenever God says that he wants the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, what he is saying is that he wants his people to stand in the gap between God and the world. That he wants his people to be a representative of God to the nations. And not just any representative, but a holy representative, a holy nation. That's the second part of that call, that he wants his people to live their lives to a certain standard, to pursue lives of holiness. And again, what does this mean, that he wants his people to be a holy nation? I understand that whenever we use that term, even that word holy, sometimes that word carries with it a lot of weight and a lot of baggage because of people who have used it in an unloving and unhealthy way. But what you need to understand is that the term holy, the word holy, in its most basic definition, it means set apart for a specific purpose. That God is calling his people to be set apart. He's calling his people to live their lives differently than the world around them, to live their lives in a way that displays something glorious about the one that they belong to. That their holiness is what is meant to help them be a representative of God to the nations. They are meant to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is important for you to understand that God's desire for his people is to live in such a way that they begin to display something glorious about God to the world around them. This is where we begin to see the why 
behind the law. And it's important for you to understand why God is doing this because for the next several chapters in the book of Exodus, starting in verse 20, there is law upon law upon law upon law. Starting with the Ten Commandments, then going with laws for the way that people are meant to relate to others, laws for the way people are meant to worship, laws for the way that the tabernacle is meant to be set up. But all of this, the giving of the law, the calling them to live in such a way, it is a call to holiness. It's a call to holy living. These are not just arbitrary rules meant to control the people's behavior. It is a call for the people of God to live in a way that displays the glory of God. That's what all of this is about. That is what God is trying to do through the people of Israel. He wants them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people who live in such a way that they make much of the God that has saved them. The call to holiness is the call for the people of God to display the glory of God. But the sad reality is that even though this beautiful invitation is extended from God to his people, it is something that, there is, that they cannot live up to. They continuously fail to live up to this standard, to live up to this call. That even though they have been called to live lives of holiness, being different than those around them, displaying something beautiful to the nations, what the people of Israel find is what many of you have found that it is much easier to go along with the culture than to live in a way that is different. It's kind of like swimming upstream. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I remember my family used to take a trip to the beach every year with like my extended family, cousins and all. And I remember being a little kid playing in the ocean with one of my cousins and we're just like fighting, wrestling, doing the things you do with your cousins in the ocean. And at one point we look up and the tent that my family was under was no longer right in front of us, but was hundreds of feet away. And what we had realized is that over time, the current was steadily pulling us away from where we were meant to be. And it was so subtle, it happened so easily that we didn't even know that it was happening. It's easy to go with the current. It's much more difficult to go against it. That's what the people of Israel realized throughout the entire Old Testament, that it's easy to go down the stream, to live in accordance to the culture, to follow what the people are doing rather than live a life that is different. And what we see of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament is that instead of becoming a kingdom of priest, that they become a kingdom with priest. That they require, that they themselves need someone to stand in the gap between God and themselves. They need a priest rather than becoming a kingdom of priests. And as you follow the storyline of the scriptures, follow the storyline of the Old Testament, you will see a pattern begin to emerge. That for a while, the people of God, that they live in accordance to God's laws, they pursue holiness, they live the lives that they are called to. But over time, they begin to drift. They begin to do their own thing. I've just been reading through Judges in my own time in the Lord, and there's a repeated phrase over and over that the people do what is right in their own eyes. That's drifting. It's drifting. It's going downstream. And so God will raise up a leader, a prophet, a priest, someone to call the people of God back to right living, living the way that he has called them to, and they will live that way for a time, and then they will start drifting. Over and over and over, this cycle repeats throughout the Old Testament, and then... On one faithful day, the New Testament begins by seeing another child is born. 
Another child is born, one who also has a leader threatened to take his life, one who is born into humble circumstances, but is raised up to lead his people, that Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, is born and he begins to walk on earth. God made flesh, Emmanuel, the true mediator between God and man. He begins to dwell with us living a life in perfect obedience to the law, displaying the glory of the Father to the entire world. And at one crucial moment in the life of Jesus, he too ascends a mountain. But only this time, he does not ascend a mountain to receive the law on behalf of the people. He ascends the mountain to receive the punishment of the people's disobedience to the law. And he is crucified on the cross. And the wrath of God for the disobedience of mankind is poured out upon him. And what we see is that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the true one that sheds his blood for the guilty. He is the true high priest that was crucified in our place. And three days later, he rises from the grave defeating sin and death, and he has offered to anyone who would call upon his name, believing that he is the Son of God, believing that he is raised from the dead, he has offered them forgiveness in place of judgment. He has offered them grace and mercy in the place of condemnation. He's offered them life in the place of death. In the gospel of Jesus, we too can receive deliverance. We too can receive deliverance, but notice that our deliverance is also for relationship. That Jesus has done all of this to bring us to himself, to reconcile us to the Father so that we can have access to the Father once more. He is the great high priest. The book of Hebrews talks about this a ton. I'd encourage you to read this. I'm going to read you a short passage, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands the temptations that you face. And then it says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we now have access to the very throne of the Father. We have been delivered for relationship. He's not just saved us from something. He has saved us for something, for relationship with God. We too have been delivered for relationship. But just like the people of Israel, our relationship is meant to have a purpose. Our relationship is meant to have a purpose. That we too have been called to live lives that are characterized by holiness. That's why I had Haley read that second passage of the scripture for you a moment ago, because I wanted you to see that the same call that was given to the people of Israel in Exodus is given to believers in the resurrected Jesus in the New Testament. The call on our lives has not changed. Those of us who are believers in Jesus are called to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, meaning we are called to be a kingdom of priests and a royal nation, which means that the same call given to those Israelite people at Mount Sinai is given to you right here and right now if you belong to Jesus. 
that you're meant to live a life that is set apart, living a life that is different than those that are around you, but not just some arbitrary rules that are meant to control your behavior. That's not what holiness is all about. Holiness is about displaying something glorious about the one that you belong to. We just have one point for tonight. It's going to be behind me on the screens. It's this, that holiness is not about behavior modification. It is about gospel proclamation. Holiness is not about behavior modification. God's not just trying to control the things you do and make sure that you're just a good little boy or a good little girl. That's not what holiness is about. Holiness is about gospel proclamation, about making much of the one who you belong to. We are called to live our lives differently in this world in a way that proclaims the good news of our Savior who has come. That just as he has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, we are now meant to live our lives in a way that shines brightly into the darkness. We are meant to live differently because of the one that we belong to. This is important. And I want you to understand this. You are called to live a life of holiness if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are called to live a life that is different. Scripture tells us in the Old Testament and in the New that God repeatedly says, you are to be holy for I am holy. That as the people of God, we're meant to reflect the nature of God. That we are meant to reflect his holiness. He is holy, so we are meant to be holy. And this is urgent. This is urgent. Hebrews 12 verse 14 tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That the holiness that we pursue, the lives that we are meant to live is a way that people will see the Lord. Holiness is something that you are meant to pursue if you are a believer. But I also want you to understand that this call to holiness, that it's not about restricting you. It's not about God trying to hold something back from you. Whenever we talk about holiness, it's a lie that many people are tempted to believe that Christianity is all about rules. And as you read about this God of the Bible, you see a God who just doesn't want his people to have fun. And a God that just has all these rules and wants to control his people's behavior. But you've got to understand that that is a lie from the pit of hell that the enemy has been telling humanity since day one. That in the Garden of Eden, he convinces Eve that God is holding something back on her. And that is why she takes the fruit and she eats it. Don't believe the lie. This is not about God holding something back from you. Holiness is a call to dis- for God to display something through you. It's about gospel proclamation. It's not about behavior modification. But I also want you to see that holiness is not about God holding back from you, but it's also not a reason by which that you should look down on others. Like we're called to live holy lives, but it's not just so that we can pursue I don't know what happened there. That was incredible. Uh, it's not just so that, okay, anyways. Holiness is not about God holding back on us, but it's also not about us like living a life so that we can feel morally superior to others. I want you to hear that. Like we're not meant to live holy lives so that we can look down our noses at people who aren't living holy lives. Like, please hear that. Remember, you are a treasured possession, but you're not a treasured possession because there's anything special about you. You're a treasured possession because of one that you belong to. Let not the call to holiness think that, let you think that there's God's trying to control you, but also don't let it think that you're better than others. Understand that the call to holiness, that it's meant to lead you to proclaim the goodness of the one who has called you into his marvelous light. That's what holiness 
is all about. And I want us to be people who pursue holiness, true holiness for the glory of God. This has been really heavy on me this week. I've been thinking about this a lot because I know how easy it is in the culture and the context in which we live to just go through the motions whenever it comes to the Christian life. That here in our context, where we live, it is still relatively easy to be a Christian. That if you want to, you can spend your days in a Christian bubble going from church service to church service, college gathering to campus ministry to family group to small group to Bible study, just doing the things that you know you are meant to do or you should do without actually allowing those things to truly change you from the inside out. And y'all, I'm just telling you, God wants so much more for you than that. That version of Christianity is lukewarm at best. It's weak faith. And I don't want that for you. We're called to be a people of holiness whose whole lives, everything that we do and say is meant to reflect the glory of our Savior, which means, this is what I want you to reckon with tonight. This is what I want you to think about tonight, which means it's time for us to do some evaluating. It's time for us to do some self-reflection and to ask ourselves the question, what part of my life is not living up to what God has called me to? What part of my life am I refusing to walk in holiness? You've got to consider all of your life. Think about the way that you pursue purity. Like those of you in dating relationships, are you pursuing dating relationships in a way that honors God and honors the one that you're dating? Or are you just pursuing dating like everyone else all around you, looking for someone to complete you, looking for someone to make you feel good about yourself, looking for someone to fill a void inside, looking for someone in which you can feel good physically with for a moment? All of that is just downstream behavior. How are you pursuing purity? Even apart from dating relationships, are you pursuing purity personally? Are you, trying to, are you giving careful thought to the things that you give your attention to? Are you giving careful thought to the things that you think about, the things that you watch, the things that you allow in your mind? Or are you bound in a never-ending cycle of your own desires, addicted to things like pornography because you're just floating downstream? Or not just purity. Think about it in terms of your integrity. Like, are you pursuing your degree your job or whatever it is that you are doing right now, are you pursuing that in a way that honors God? Or are you doing it by cutting corners just like everyone else all around you? I gotta think about this a lot. I cannot tell you how many people I heard, like during the height of COVID, whenever all classes were online, when I know some of you still wish that it was like that, whenever all classes were online, the amount of people, Christians, that I heard just joking about the fact that they were cheating on tests, exams, papers, because it was all online, it was easy to do so, and everyone else was doing it. Can I just tell you, the fact that everyone else is doing it is probably a good reason that you shouldn't do it. 
Like, you're called to live a life that's different. And I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'm just trying to tell you what you're called to. You're called to purity. You're called to integrity. We're not meant to live one way in this sphere and another way in this sphere. We talked about that a little bit last week. There's so easy for us to walk into a room like this or walk into family group and know the right answers and be able to put on our Christian face and know all the right answers and then step out of that room and get around a different group of people and act a completely different way. That is not what you are called to. You are called to something so much more than that. And whenever we think about holiness and living lives that are holy or not holy, I think some of us think that in order to live a life that is not holy, we need to just, that we're the people that are taking place in like all the big sins. That the people who are unholy are the ones who are like going downtown and drinking and doing drugs and having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And I'm not doing that, so I'm not unholy. Well, let me ask you this. Are you giving careful attention to your faith or are you living a life of passivity whenever it comes to your relationship with Jesus? Because passivity is never going to lead to progress. Passivity is only going to make you drift. We have to think about these things. Ephesians tells us to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Think about the way that you live. Are you pursuing holiness? Are you pursuing a life that honors God? Are you just doing whatever feels right to you in the moment? And I want you to hear me really clearly. This is really important to me that you hear this. I'm not saying any of this to shame any of you. My heart is, whenever I step on a stage like this, my heart is never to heap shame at you and tell you to do better and white knuckle it and just try harder. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm not trying to heap shame upon you right now, but I am trying to show you what you have been called to. That you have been called to a life of holiness. And a life of holiness is not a subpar life. It is life to the full. It is life at its best. It is life as it was always meant to be. It's not God holding back from you. It's him inviting you into a life that is truly beautiful, the way that you were always meant to be. But in order to pursue this, you have to understand the call that has been given to you, and you have to understand the deceptive powers of sin that seek to tear you away from the life of holiness that you've been called to. The passage of scripture that Haley read a moment ago in 1 Peter talks about these passions of the flesh, and it says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I want you to see sin, which desires of the flesh, sin, anything that is causing you to live a life of unholiness. I want you to see sin as a thing that wages war on your soul. As a force that is out to get you, you have to realize that you have an enemy that wants your ruin. He wants to destroy you. He lies around like a roaring lion awaiting someone to devour. You must understand that sin wages war on your soul seeking to destroy you. You must see it like that and begin to fight back. Pursuing a life characterized by holiness, not just so that you can look good in the eyes of others, but so that you can be a part of what God is doing here in this world. And hear me, the good news of the gospel is that you do not have to pursue holiness in your own power. You don't have to pursue holiness in your own power. The Israelites tried to do that and they failed, 
Perhaps you've tried it as well. What she realizes is that the current just gets too strong at a certain point. But I don't want you to be discouraged by this call to holiness. I want you to be encouraged because those of us who are believers in Christ Jesus, we believe that not only is he the deliverer, but he's also the sustainer. He's the one that calls us to pursue holiness, but he's also the one who empowers us to live this life of holiness. And then if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what that means is that you have his very spirit living within you and you are called to walk according to his spirit and to walk in holiness. Galatians 5, 16 says, but I say this, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That means you gotta learn not to depend upon your own strength, but to go to God, to trust God, to depend upon his spirit working in you, recognizing the call that you have been given recognizing the destructive power of sin and turning away from sin and turning to God and walking with him. And through the power of the Spirit, beginning to pursue holiness in a way that makes much of Jesus. This is what I want for us. I want us to be a people who pursue holiness, individually and collectively, a holy people not just so that we'll look good in the eyes of others, but so that we can be used to point others to Jesus. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just especially in light of everything that's going on. I'm sure that you guys are seeing the same things that I'm seeing, that college students around the nation, that there seems to be a revival sweeping the nation, God moving in powerful ways, and it's incredible to see. And I'll tell you unashamedly that I want to be a part of seeing God do something miraculous in our day. Like, I want to see revival in this city, to be a part of a great move of God in the city of Athens that reaches the end of the world. And I hope that you want that as well. But I want you to hear me really clearly. The evidence of revival will not be seen in rooms like this. It will be seen in lives that are transformed whenever we leave places like this. It will be seen by a desire for repentance and a desire to turn from sin and to turn to God and make much of him, not just in the big emotional worship moments. That's good and that's glorious, but the evidence of true revival will be seen in the lives of individuals whenever they leave these places and commit to pursuing Jesus with all that they have. That, that is what I want to be a part of. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. The question that I'm asking whenever I'm thinking about revival and seeing college students desire to live a life of holiness in a way that makes much of their king, the question that I'm asking is why not here? Why not now? Why not us? Let us be people who are open to a move of God and pursue holiness for his glory and the good of those around us. Holiness for the purpose of gospel proclamation, not behavior modification.